0: We are here this morning to honor your great love, to honor you and all that you can do for us and your great love for us. We are amazed by it. You have adopted us as sons and daughters because of our faith in your son, Jesus. That is a beautiful thing. You declare us acceptable before you. You write our name in your book. You fill us with your Holy Spirit. You look on us with a smile and when we put our faith in you that means there's nothing we can do to make you love us any more. There's nothing you can do, we can do to make you love us any less than you already do. That's a beautiful thing. We know nobody else like that except for you. So we just hear amazed at your great love. It never fails us. It never gives up on us. Even when we are at our worst. Your love is always at its best. And that's a beautiful thing. We need that today. We need that every day. And so, God, we just say you are so good. You are so good. So we pray in this moment that you speak to us this morning. You speak through your word as you've already spoken in worship. As we continue to worship, would you speak? Pray that for yourself right now. Just ask God to speak to you. Pray that for somebody else that's around you. Ask God to speak to them. And then please pray that for me. Ask God to speak through me. Yeah, we want to be used by you. We want you to speak to us today. And so we say we love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys have a seat. Thanks, Chris. That awesome. Back in high school, um, I had an insane basketball coach, and instead of dodgeball with those rubber balls that we played, this is back in the 80s, okay, and so um, there was a lot less rules back then, we had a basketball gym, and the first time I ever heard of a game that resembled dodgeball, it was called a different name, and we used different balls, okay? So our basketball coach, he was trying to teach us, this was all legal, by the way, he's didn't get fired or anything. Uh, He was trying to teach us to be tough. And he said, uh, we're going to play a game called war ball, was essentially uh, dodgeball, but he used basketballs instead of dodgeballs. Okay. And so I'm like, all right, let's do this. And so the only problem was when you had to go up and get the ball off the line um, or get a ball that was close to the line and somebody else already had one. I remember the very first time we ever played it, Um, I caught a basketball, like a dodgeball game, square in the face, all right? And I I don't know if you've ever seen like the birds on cartoons, but that actually happens. If you get hit hard enough, it actually happens. And so what I didn't know back then was I was, the, I was kind of the guy that always got picked last, you know. And so that means if you get picked last, you're probably on the team that's not going to win. That was me. And uh, if I were cho- to choose sides in a game like that, when there's that much at stake, war ball, dodgeball with basketballs, um, I would have definitely chose the, the, the winning side. All right. Um, we interviewed yesterday in our church uh, for Father's Day. Um, a man in our church named Paul who was at Pearl Harbor when it was attacked by the Japanese on December 7, 1941. Okay, he's in his mid-90s and he was there telling us about what happened. I don't know if you have studied that in school, but it was just a lazy day and the Japanese army had come a very long way across the Pacific and mounted a surprise attack on a peaceful harbor in beautiful downtown Uh, I think it's in Honolulu right there in Hawaii and um, thousands and thousands and thousands of men died right Um, what he did was he was he was at a hotel on leave um, right above the harbor and as he saw the planes dropping their bombs uh, the Japanese planes they would come just make it and buzz the top of the hotel he was on the top floor He said they were coming so close he could see faces, he could see the big red circle on the side of the plane, and he grabbed his friends, he's in the army, and he ran down into the mix of a battle. And my question, if I were to ask Paul, Paul is in his mid-90s, he's got a thick Greek accent, uh, because he was raised in Greece and he was working, and... Serving the United States military as a US citizen. Um, But what I would ask him is, how did you know who was on the right side? Right? I mean, it's easy for him to answer because he was like, I have an American flag on my arm and I fight for the American flag and for the country and for the people of the country and with my friends and partners. Um, But if you were going into a battle, if you were going into a war ball in a gym, you had no idea what to do, how would you know which side to choose? How would you know which side was going to lose? Which side was going to win? It would be really important, right? I don't know about you, but in a battle, in war ball, in anything else in between, I want to choose the winning side. I want to make sure that the enemy, if there's an enemy, I want to make sure I'm not on the side of the enemy, that I'm on the side of the winner. And so as we begin to unravel all the things that we are talking about I'm going to talk about this week in Genesis, that's actually where our story begins. God wants to make real clear, and I want to teach you something this morning in just a few minutes, it's not going to be long, but if you listen and pay attention and think with me, if you think with me this morning, I think God wants to change your life about something. I think he wants to teach you something this morning about who our enemy is, about who the winner is, how our enemy works, and how our winner is going to win. Got it? So if you've got your Bibles, we'll be in Genesis chapter 3. This is where everything falls apart, as you probably already know. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we have some beautiful things. As you get to Genesis chapter 3, it'll be up on your screen in just a second. But um, as you get there in your Bible, you need to know in Genesis 1, we didn't talk about it a lot last night because we were all real tired, but God comes in and just says stuff, you know? He doesn't get his hands dirty, until the end. He says, um, earth. And he goes, whoa. And it just was there, right? And he goes, moon. And he goes, whoa, because it's a little smaller. It made a smaller sound, right? And uh, he says, Saturn. It was like, whoa. And he says, I want some rings around that one. And so then there it was. I mean, he just says it. He thinks it and speaks it out. When he said, let there be light. And there was light. It was there, which means that There had to be darkness before there was light, but darkness is something because it's the absence of, and then we get all kinds of, how how did he create everything out of, out of nothing when there was no nothing. There had to be a space for nothing to be in in order for him to create. Anyway, I get really upset in my mind, right? So God is amazing. He just speaks things into existence. On one day, he creates something. On the second day, he creates something else. On the third day, he creates something else. And then on the fourth day, he goes back to what he created on the first day and fills it with good stuff. On the fifth day, he goes back to what he created on the second day and he fills it. With good stuff, And on the sixth day, he goes back to what he created on the third day, and he fills it with good stuff. And that's where he finally gets his hands dirty. And he says, knelt down in the dirt, God himself, and formed with his hands, you and I, Adam and Eve, man and woman. And then in chapter two, we have a short break. We step back. We change angles. And he says, now I want to tell you how exactly I did that. Okay, I created man. And before there was ever sin, before we even get to chapter 3, which we're going to read, there was something in that spot, in that perfection, if you can imagine perfection that's not perfect. If you can imagine a perfection, there was something in there that was not good. The first thing that's not good in our Bible is way before sin. might know what it is? Man being alone. Very good. Adam is there, and God creates all the animals. And he said, all these animals need some names. And so he said, I want to bring them in front of you one by one. And Adam's sitting there going, man, this is going to be fun. He's like, um, alligator. I don't know why, but that's just coming to me. That sounds good. So, okay, go. And he's like, ostrich. Yes. All right. And so he's going along. He's running out of names, you know. And so he comes up to, he comes up to like these gross, ugly animals. He's running out of names. And he's like, I don't longhorn. I don't know. I mean, just go, you know, like keep, I don't, I don't know. It's just smelly. Get it out of here. Okay. And so he's coming up to all these things and then God brings them all back through. And he's like, Hey, um, did you see any animal that you want like a second date with or something? He's like, no, that's ridiculous. Like I can't have a relationship with any of these animals. And he's like, that's not good. And so he puts him to sleep, thankfully, because it would have hurt. He took out a rib when he was awake. So he puts him in a sleeve, forms a woman, and that's really the first thing the guy says. He's like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, uh, whoa, man. That's what we'll call her, all right? Whoa, because, man, <laughs> she looks good, and I think I want a second date with her. And uh, so we have a marriage ceremony, and then we go. And he says one rule, only one rule, because... Love. I want your love, God says to them. I want your love. And for there to be love, there has to be freedom. There is no love in robots. There is no love in computer programs. For there to be love in the universe, there has to be freedom. And he says, so I'm going to give you all the freedom in the world with one little rule to test and to make sure that you're obedient to me so you can love me, worship me. We can have relationship together. We can walk together. This is the most beautiful place you've ever Imagine only one simple rule. There's a tree. Do not eat from that tree. If you eat from it, you will die, die. Very emphatic. Everything else from... Um, everywhere else. You may eat, eat, is what he says in the Hebrew. Eat, eat, fully, emphatically from everything else except for this one tree. When you eat from this tree, you will die, die. Please don't do that. I don't want you to do that. I want your obedience. I want your freedom. I want your love and worship. I want to have a relationship with you. That's when we get to chapter three. After all this beauty, after all this, we have no idea how long Adam and Eve had been walking around. Since the day he created them till the day that we're going to read about in Genesis chapter three, we have no, long, no idea how long that was. Was it 48 hours? Was it 48,000 years? I have no idea. We did know that he wanted them to have kids and they didn't. So either they didn't have enough time to have kids yet or they just never did. And so I like to see this as probably a very short amount of time, less than nine months, okay? So in less than nine months, they are coming up to the edge of disobedience. Look at chapter 3. It'll be up on your screen. Now the serpent was, I'm going to ask you some questions and I want you to think with me, okay? And I'm going to ask you some questions that I can, they're not rhetorical, you can shout out answers if you're brave enough to do that, okay? Uh, Chapter three, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Everything up until this very moment that the Lord God had made, what did he call? He called it good, he described it rather. He described everything that he had made as what? good, everything. The only thing that was not good was not something that he made. There was a relational problem. And he said, I'm I'm setting that up to show you how important relationships are among humans, how beautiful the idea of marriage is, okay? How beautiful the idea of man and woman, one man, one woman being together for the rest of their life. And Producing children and having a family and fighting for their family. So that's all that. Um, Everything else that he created is good. He formed the little snakes. He rolled them like Play-Doh, right? Put two eyes in them, boom, kicked them out. That's good. And then in the first verse of chapter three, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the animals that the Lord God had made. Already we're thinking, this doesn't sound like a normal snake. This doesn't sound like... Why would a snake be more crafty than anything else? And we have to wait till the opposite end of our Bible, Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 20, when God tells us very clearly, we know, but he tells us very clearly, oh, Satan, the devil, the serpent of old, that's why he was more crafty, because this just isn't a snake. This is the enemy this is the enemy. And so sometime, here's the beautiful, interesting mystery. Sometime before this verse that you just read, before this verse that's up on the screen, sometime before chapter 3, verse 1, um, there was a great angel in heaven. In Latin, we call him um, the morning star. And in Latin, that sounds like Lucifer. Okay? He is called the accuser, which is Satan. Satan. So he has all of these titles. He didn't really doesn't have a name. Those aren't really names. Those are descriptions. All right? Uh, and so we have this individual that God created. And when he created, he created them good. And he wanted him to love him. So he gave him what? Freedom. Freedom. Because there has to be freedom in order for you to have love. And so he wanted the angels to love him and serve him willingly. So he gave him freedom. And this individual, who was one of the highest ranks of the angels created, took that freedom and said, you know what? I could do a better job than you can. And so I'd like to have your job. That's explained for us in detail in Isaiah and Ezekiel. But it says that, hey, I want to have your job. Okay, Isaiah 14, I think, and Ezekiel 28, um, or it's the reverse of that. I can't remember. It's off the top of my head in my study. All right. But it describes Lucifer, the Satan, the devil. It's really the Satan, the accuser, saying to God, I want to be like you. I want to be better than you. I want to be above you. And God was like, sorry about that. Can't have that. And so he removes him, evicts him from heaven and puts him down on the earth. And he takes a third of the angels with him. And so the angels that God created that still obey God, that was like a one-time decision, still obey God, outnumber demons two to one. That's a pretty good deal, all right? But this guy fell down to earth, and he his only mission now, this is what we're going to see, his only mission now is to separate men and women from God, hopefully forever to separate them from God, for them to choose what he chose to rebel. And so this is what we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty. Now, here's the deal. If you want to pick the side that you're going to play on in a war or in war ball, the one thing you need to know is how do you understand the enemy? How do you understand what he's going to try to do, right? So um, these jocks I'm playing with in war ball, they would make... Uh, And just ruins me. Okay? Got it? All right. Got some opposition here maybe, okay? <laughs> it's funny. Uh, so it's important in a battle to know uh, who the enemy is. Know what his strategy is, isn't it? Let's pay attention. Because you're about to understand the strategy of your enemy. If you didn't know that already, you have an enemy. He's very strong, but he's not the strongest. He's very wise, but he's not the wisest. He's very powerful, but he can't do everything. He can't be in every place at one time. He doesn't know everything. Okay? So here's the strategy of the enemy, and then what we're going to see is the strategy of the winner. That's going to be beautiful. Now the servant was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? We didn't read that, but is that, is that true? Did God say to Adam, don't eat from anything in this garden? Is that true? No. So you see, the first thing that your enemy does, Satan, is he comes and says, your God is a bully. He's not letting you have anything, is he? When God says, no, I'm letting you have everything. I'm letting you have everything. But I want some obedience in that, and so there needs to be this understanding of obedience. God said to Adam and Eve, "You can have everything, everything. One tree, one tree." Do you know how, when most people um, describe the Garden of Eden, we think it's something like, you know, maybe the size of Camp Eagle. Most people, when they understand how it's described in the Bible, do you know what they equate it to? From modern-day Iraq to modern-day Egypt, that entire area, okay? This is a wide place. God said, travel as long as you want, take hikes, go on weekend trips, do whatever. You can have everything, but I want obedience because that's important for worship So he says, just don't eat from this one tree. So here's the enemy saying, your God is a bully. He won't let you have any fun. You ever heard that in your heart? I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to walk. I don't want to be a disciple of Jesus. I don't want to follow Jesus. Why? Because it's not any fun. All of the good things in life, in my opinion, all the fun things, they take away. I'm telling you right now, that's a lie from the enemy because he's been doing it from the beginning. Okay? I try my best to be obedient to God. I still sin, I still fail, I still struggle. I'm telling you, I'm having the best time of my entire life. And I lived through a couple years of college without Jesus and tried their way of having the best time in my entire life. I'm telling you, it doesn't hold a candle to what I'm doing now, okay? That was empty and horrible in comparison to the life I'm living now. I can't imagine having any more fun. Than, than I'm having now, all right? He says, your God is a bully. You're being lied to in the same way. Pay attention. The woman said to the serpent, verse two, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat or touch it lest you die. Now, we didn't read this, but take my word on it. If you can read in chapter two, God said that tree in the middle of the garden that you're not supposed to eat from, you can build a tree house in it, You can put a tire swing on it. You can chop part of it down to build a house. I don't care. You can touch it, crawl around it. You can live in that tree, but just don't eat the fruit. So you see what happens here? The enemy comes into Eve and says, your God's a bully. He's not letting you have any fun. And she says, well, no, 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 that's not true. God's letting us have everything except this one thing, but he also, he won't let us touch that tree. That's not what God said. And so the enemy has already won. You see? He says, your God's a bully. And she says, no, no, that's not true. He won't let us do this. And then she adds something to it. You see? She adds something to it and says, we can't eat from it or touch it unless we die. God never said that. God just said, don't eat from it. So when Satan comes in and takes the form of something good... He takes the form of something good. You notice he did not show up as a dragon with black scales, breathing fire, whispering in in Eve's ear, hey, let's go and kill Adam and run away together. Like she would say, "Uh, no, you're scary, right? That's not what the devil does. He always takes the form of something attractive, something we think is good. So he took the form of something good. He twists the words of God And then he tempts us. He takes the form of something good. He twists the words of God and then he tempts us. And that's what we see here. Look, verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you surely won't die. What's he saying? God is lying to you. God is a liar. He said to you would die. Not true. He's lying. Don't believe him. And let me tell you why he's lying. You will surely not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Here's what's happening, Eve. God is lying to you because he doesn't want you to have fun. He doesn't want you to be like him. And if you do this, you'll be like him. That's why he's not letting you do this. You see the problem here? Your God is a bully. He's lying to you. And if you do what I'm telling you to do, it's going to be the best ever. And she says, all right, okay, yeah, that, that sounds pretty good. That makes sense to me. Because he took the form of something good, he twisted the words of God, and then he tempts her. Do this, do this. Verse, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, there was the delight to the eyes, the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from his fruit and ate. And you're thinking, where's Adam in all this, right? Aren't you? I hope you know, by the way, women talking to you, men looking at you. For the whole rest of our Bible, this sin that we're talking about right now, who is it attributed to? Who is to blame for this sin for the whole rest of the Bible? Is it Eve? No. Adam. It's Adam. He gets the blame. In every other book, in every other reference, Okay, now let me show you what happens. Why do I think Adam gets the blame? Because Adam got the original command from God to not eat from that tree. And where is he? Is he over in the corner playing gaga ball by himself, which is really boring, by the way? Um, what is he doing? Is he plowing the field? Is he petting an ostrich? Is he trying to come up with other names for ugly animals? Um, I don't know. Do you think, where, where, where is he? Look, verse six. She took from its fruit and ate... And also gave it to her husband, who was with her. And he ate. So where's Adam? He is right there. Right there. Right behind her. He never says, um, time out. This is sounding really familiar. There's some red flags going up here. I think we need to powwow and conference about this. Snake, you stay there. Let me go talk to my wife. Uh, he doesn't say that. He's like, oh, that sounds good to me. Yeah, okay, all right. Uh. Yeah, it looks looks good. Sure, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Okay? That's why the sin is attributed to him. So she takes a bite and goes like this. And he takes a bite. Now look what happens. Then, uh, eyes, verse 7. The eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin covering. Now, here's the horrible part of what happens. Besides inventing a use for salad that was never intended, um, they all of a sudden, right immediately, have a different relationship with God. Can you describe the relationship with God thus far? What, What was one of the phrases that they used in chapter two? Do you remember what they did in the cool of the evening? You remember? They walked with God. They literally like took strolls with him. I don't know how that happens. Kind of blows my mind. But still, that's pretty amazing. So they're walking around with God. And he's like, hey, did you see that over there? I made that specially for you. It's really cool. And uh, they're like, wow, that's awesome. Can you describe it? He's like, sure, I'll describe it to you. And this is how I did it. And this is why I did it. And this whole relationship is awesome. When he comes down, if he came down or whatever, they ran to him. Okay, he always knew where they were. You cannot play hide and seek from God even today. I just want to let you know that, okay? It doesn't work. You can't play hide and seek from a guy who knows everything, okay, and sees everything. And so when God came to walk, they ran to him. And they said, you're here again, you're here again. Let's do this all over again, all right? And so they went. Now look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. That's where you and I live. We live in the bushes. And you and I, our heart, because we live in a broken, corrupt world, and everything is corrupting and broken and falling apart, we live in the bushes, As God is walking by and he's saying, where are you, Adam? Where are you, Seth? Where are you, Caleb? Where are you, Jessica, Brittany, Tiffany? Where are you? And we are hiding because of sin. Because that's what the enemy does to us. You don't want to be on that side of the war. You don't want to be on that side of the court in war ball. Okay? Because those are the guys in the black hats. Those are the guys that think that they're winning, think they have a strategy, but I'm about to show you they are not winning. They have lost already. This is what happens to us. This is what you will be fighting today, every day of your life. You think your God's a bully because your enemy is whispering that in your ear. You think that you can't run to him because you're not good enough and you're shameful of what you've done, of what you thought, of what you said, of what you've seen, and you don't think God will accept you. I wanna tell you all of those things are a lie, okay? If you have placed your faith in Jesus, if that describes you today, let me tell you about your identity. Let me tell you about who you are. I don't know if anybody's ever done this, I've never met you. I'm gonna tell you who you are, all right? If you've placed your faith in Jesus today, because of Christ's redemption, you are are a person of infinite worth. You are fully accepted, completely forgiven, right? Adopted into his family, loved beyond compare. There has never been another person like you in the history of the world, nor will there ever be. And that's because God has created you for a certain purpose. You cannot do anything to make God love you less. You cannot do anything to make God love you more. Because of Christ, and you place your faith in Christ, that's who you are. And Adam and Eve, they had a problem. They listened to the devil. They were tempted and they reacted to it. And all of a sudden, they're running away from God. All right? Now look at verse... 14. In the middle, which we won't get to, what happens is God comes in and says, Adam, did you eat from the tree? And he's like, uh, um, well, uh, yeah, but the, like, she, she, she was the one who made me do it. It's really, you need to be talking to her over there, like that one. And I'm just going to go this way, right? And so he's blaming the woman, and he goes, Eve, is that true? And she's like, yeah, but it's really, it's more complicated than that, because it's really the serpent's fault. It was him who uh, made me, and I'm just, you need to be talking to him, and I'm going to go this way, right? So everybody's blaming each other. Sound familiar? Look at verse 14. So then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed Are you more than all the cattle? You need to know that man and woman do not get cursed in Genesis 3. Only two things get cursed, and that's the serpent and the ground, okay? Cursed are you more than any cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity. Now, here's where I need you to think with me. Pay attention. Look on your screen or in your Bible at verse 15. I'm going to ask you some questions. Who is God talking to right now? Satan, the serpent, okay? He's talking to the serpent. In verse 15, he's still talking to the serpent. Who's God talking to? The serpent. Look at verse 15. And I, who's I? Who's talking? God. I will put enmity. That means fighting, okay? Struggle. Uh, It's like an arm wrestle. I will put struggle between you. Who's you? Who's he talking to? The serpent, the devil, the serpent, okay? And the woman. Who's the only woman in existence? Eve. She doesn't have a name yet, by the way. She's called the woman thus far. She will get a name in just a second. But you're right, Eve. So he says, God, I will put struggle and striving between you, the serpent, and you, the woman. Okay? And between your, who's your? The serpent. Your seed and her seed. Who's her? Eve, the woman. Um, Question. Do either serpents or women have seed seed? like a tomato. Uh, no. So he's obviously not talking about a seed that you go and plant in the ground and something else goes like, let's plant some snake plants or some woman plants. Okay, that, that really doesn't happen. So what's he talking about here? This word is very important. Um, who's in the tribe of Seth? Just raise your hand. Seth, your name comes from this word, seed, Very, very important. So what is he talking about? Between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. What does seed really stand for? Offspring, good. Descendants, those that come after them that are like them, that look like them, right? And so he says, you're gonna be fighting with each other, the serpent and the woman. And all the ones that come after you, pay attention, this is really big. This is where I need you to think. This is where I need you to think with me. If you can see this, you'll not only see the strategy of the enemy that's trying to kill you, you'll see the strategy of the winner who's already won. Pay attention, okay? I'm putting struggle and striving between you and the woman and between all those who come after you, the serpent, who disobey and want to tempt and and rebel, and all of those after the woman whom I've created this good who wants to follow me. Okay? Who I walk with in the cool evening. Even though he disobeyed, he's like, there is going to be some that come after you that are going to want to follow me. So she stands for all that's good and righteous in relation with God. And he, the serpent, stands for all that's rebellious and evil. Now look, he shall bruise you on the head. You see where we're going here? And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. Now who's the he? The serpent, God, God is I, the seed, Uh, who else? Anybody? The serpent, this is not the same phrase and usage as the serpent, so it can't be the serpent. Jesus, Adam, Jesus isn't alive yet, but that's a good response. Adam, Adam isn't being spoken to, and this phrase, the way that it's written, just take my word for it in the original language, cannot refer to Adam. Adam. So who's he talking about? Who's the he? It's an interesting question. Well, let's, let's pay attention and look at what he does. Let's look at what he does. He shall bruise you, in this word, and that means to strike or crush, shall strike you on the head and you shall bruise him. Same word, strike or crush him on the heel. And so who's the you? Who's God talking to you? The serpent. So, this individual, this is a masculine, male, singular individual. He, whoever he is, we haven't determined that yet, he shall come and crush the serpent on the head, and the serpent will bite him on the heel. How do you kill a snake? You got to cut the head off. You can start from the back and sushi style that sucker until you get to the top and it ain't going to die, right? You got to take the head off. How does a venomous snake kill a person? By biting them anywhere they can. It doesn't matter if it's your pinky or your big toe or your heel. And since they crawl on the ground at this point... That's all they need is the heel. I want you to understand this bruise verb in both sides, this strike crush word that is both meaning death. He, whoever this he is, is going to kill Satan, and Satan is going to kill him. Got it? That's what it says. He will kill the serpent, and the serpent will kill him. Interesting. So what are we talking about? Who are we talking about? Who is the he? I would submit to you that the he isn't around yet, but he's coming. And the he is one of the seed of the woman, one of her descendants. There was going to be somebody that comes along, somebody, a man, and he's going to rise up and he's going to kill the serpent and the serpent's going to kill him. Got it? Isn't that what it says? I've been studying this for years, by the way. Um, Actually, I went through several years of learning Hebrew. I don't really know it all that well. Learning Hebrew really simply because I wanted to study this passage. This was one of my main focuses of this. I wanted to understand what this says. And this is what it says. There will be an individual who will come, a man. He will kill the serpent, and the serpent will kill him. Can you think of who that is? a seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman. If you don't know, after this, what happens is, um, it's very interesting, Um, right after this, God speaks to uh, Adam, he speaks to the ground, he speaks to the woman, uh, and then he kicks him out of the garden. And right outside the garden, um, when he kills a lamb or some animal and makes skin coverings for them and gives them out because salad, fig leaves isn't good enough because there has to be shedding of blood in order for there to be forgiveness of sins. And so the first physical death recorded in our Bible is at the hand of God who kills a helpless animal as a substitute for killing Adam and Eve. And he covers them with bloody skins and he kicks them out of the garden. And right outside, the can you imagine? They're kicking out of the garden. They're dirty. They have bloody skins on them. They're no longer in the presence of God. And now they have to work the ground. The earth is falling apart all of a sudden. They're sweating. They get cut and they hurt. Things are dying. And they're like, wow, um, everything's changed. Everything just changed in 10 minutes. Everything changed. You know what Adam does right there? He looks at his wife and he says, I'm gonna give you a new name. Because right now her name is Isha, which is woman. And he says, I'm gonna give you a new name. And that name is, you remember where they are? They're outside the garden in the dust. They got bloody skins hanging on them. They're looking at each other. They're sweating. They're hurting. Everything around them is starting to die and decay. And he says to her, I'll tell you what I'm gonna name you. Eve, which means life. What? <laughs> I can think of a lot of other names to name the woman at that time, right? Like a big, long hyphenated, why in the world did you do this to me and give me the fruit and make all this happen? Hyphenated for tax purposes so, so you can fit it all in the box. Like, what? What did you do? Doofus. You know, uh, I'm stupid for listening to you. I, I don't know. what. But he chooses her name as life. The question is, Why? Why does Adam, this is where he is, right? Outside the garden, bloody skins, work in the ground, sweat, blood. And he looks at his wife and he says, here in the land of death, I'm going to call you life. Why does he do that? Unless he's looking for someone that comes from her, that's going to make it right. If you still don't believe me, you can read in Genesis chapter 5 when we finally get to Noah. You can take this later. When you finally get to Noah's dad, Noah's dad, uh, his wife is pregnant. She's about to give birth. And he's like, I tell you what, we're going to name this guy Noah because maybe he will free us from the curse that the Lord has put on us. He's thinking that his son may be a certain special individual. That his son, a male, a singular individual, may be a certain special guy. What kind of guy is he looking for? He's looking for a guy that comes and kills the serpent and gets us back into the garden. Gets us back into the presence of God. That's the whole point of the whole rest of our Bible. Do you understand? We start walking with God in the presence of God, in the kingdom of God, in the beginning. Where is the end of our story? We walk with God in the presence of God, in the kingdom of God, at the end of our Bible. The whole middle section is trying to get us back to the presence of God. And so God says, there is an enemy You've seen his strategy. Don't believe it. There is a winning side, and I'll tell you how I'm going to win. From Genesis chapter 3, I'm preaching to you the gospel, the gospel message, and that is this. You don't make your own way back into the garden. You don't fight and try to be perfect and earn your ticket back into the garden. There's no amount of money you can earn to buy a ticket back into the garden. There's no disguise that you can put on or mask that you can wear that gets you back into the garden. How do you get back into the garden? God says, I'm going to come and do it for you. I'm going to come and kill the serpent. And the serpent's going to kill me. And in the process, you all get back in. Does that sound familiar? God himself, a male, from the seed of the woman, born on the earth, comes and kills Satan. Satan kills him. Let me ask you a question. You need to think with me for a little bit. Which one of those happened first? Did the he kill the serpent, or did the serpent kill the he? Which one happened first? Which one happened already? The serpent killed the he, didn't he? He tempted and bribed a bunch of individuals with false accusations. And Jesus, the son of God, God himself was crucified on the cross for a lie. And the serpent thought that he won because he killed the he. But what he didn't understand was Easter Sunday, right? He didn't understand that God has a power that's greater than death, and he brought the he back to life. And all of a sudden, the serpent's like, Oh, crap. Um, I remember that promise. Excuse me for that, but that's what I want to say, because he's in big trouble. He remembers what God said in Genesis 3. And when that guy comes back, the serpent's already done his worst against the he, and now the he is coming back. And he's going to do his best against the serpent. And he is going to be destroyed and put away forever. Forever. And you know what happens because of that? All of us get to go back into the presence of God. This is what happens in Genesis 3. Everything falls apart. This is what I want you to see. I want you to see the strategy of your enemy. He takes the form of things that are good. He twists the words of God and he tempts you and tries to pull you away from God. Okay? All kinds of bad things happen. But the strategy of the winner, of the guy who's already won, is much different He says, I'm going to win for you. I'm going to do this for you. This is the story of our Bible, and it comes in the third chapter of it. Can you imagine any greater story than that? Can you imagine any greater thing than that? That means that all we do in our life is like Hebrews, by faith, In the word of God, we understand these things. God says, I've done it all for you. All I'm asking for is for you to trust me. It's for you to trust me. It's for you to love me. And I do it all for you. You get back into the presence of God and I will kill the enemy for you. All I need is your trust. All I'm asking for you is for you to believe and trust. That's a great deal. This is the story that we're going to be talking about for the rest of our time together. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this great word, how you explain and describe for us the strategy of our enemy, and so that you can teach us how to see him coming, how to understand and hear his whisper in our life, and so that we won't believe him. God, help us. Help us to understand that so we see it coming and we don't believe him. And. God, would you help us, every man and woman in here, every student across the board, God, would you woo us to yourself? Would you call us to yourself? I pray for every person in this room to put their faith and trust in the winner, in the person who wins. And we can do that right now simply by saying, God, Father, I see that story and I understand. And I want to be on the side of the winner, the person who's already won. Even though we're still playing it out, I want to be on the winning side. And so right now, in this moment, the quietness of my heart, i want to say, I trust you. I believe in your story. I'm rejecting the lies of the enemy. And I'm saying right now, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting in your son, Jesus, who was the he who came and made all things right. I'm believing in him for the forgiveness of my sins so that he can welcome me back into your presence. I believe that right now. I trust you. Even though I don't understand all that that means, that's okay. But right now I trust you. And I receive your gift of forgiveness and life that you adopted me as your son and daughter in this very moment, wrote my name in your book, never to be taken out. I trust you in this moment. I pray that if that didn't happen, Right now, Father, that that happens at some point this week for every single one of us who haven't already placed our trust in you. That's what we want, God. Change our lives, change every one of us. We're looking to you. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.